Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad that you are listening in today. As God's people, we are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. I just want to take a moment to speak to all of you, our listeners, uh, especially those of you who are part of the Valley View family, uh, normally in our congregation, but are now homebound. I am so glad that you are still a part of the family here at Valley View. And this podcast has been a small way to stay a little more connected with you. Recently, I have had a few people, some of you, ask if the podcast would eventually go away. Uh, We're meeting more regularly as a congregation, and things feel a little more normal, if you can call anything normal these days. Uh, But I want to just say this to reassure you. We have found the podcast to be a very fruitful ministry, and especially as long as I am the pastor here at Valley View, I plan on to keep putting out this podcast. Uh, If ever there's a week that the Valley View podcast is not posted, uh, the most likely reason is this, that we probably had a guest speaker in our main worship service. As of right now, we don't have a good way to record guest speakers, uh, but we're working on that. We want to rectify that so in the future, when we have guests, you can hear their messages as well. As of right now, the podcast messages that you are hearing are recorded in my own home at Pastor Josh's house. Uh, You can picture me up in a little room on the second floor, hunched over a microphone, uh, usually in the corner, staring at the wall, usually my notes. And I often have to start over and over recording this message because I'll I'll get a good way through and then the dog starts barking or Seth, my son, opens the door to ask a question. So uh, I don't record these uh, during our worship service. They're recorded at home. Uh, but I'm glad to do it. It's been such a fruitful thing for our church. This podcast, in its own small way, has been a wonderful ministry, and uh, I will keep posting and putting it out, which is something we're glad of at Valley View. Well, now on to our message for this Sunday. In their excellent book on reconciliation, Emmanuel Katagole and Chris Rice share the true story of Billy Neil Moore. He's originally from Columbus, Ohio. And Billy Neil Moore um, would find both Jesus in prison and ultimately find his victim's parents to be his greatest advocates. Billy Neil Moore uh, was in prison. He had uh, murdered a man. And uh, he was in jail awaiting trial, uh, and he was sentenced uh, to the death penalty. And as he was awaiting that sentence, there was a minister who shared with him the gospel, that Jesus loved him and wanted to forgive his sins, and more learned that no one was beyond redemption. And so from prison, uh, well, he became a Christian, and from prison, while he was beginning his sentence, he wrote to uh, the victim's family, and he asked for their forgiveness. Uh, Astoundingly, they immediately wrote back to say that they were also Christians and that they forgave him. Then, the family decided to petition the Georgia Parole Board to commute Moore's death sentence. In 1991, Moore was paroled from prison, and he was transformed by the grace of God and his victim's families, the, the family of the victim, they transformed him as well. He said, when he was released, they embraced me like a brother. That's what he said of uh, the victim's family. 
And ever since, he has been preaching the gospel of forgiveness to school children, to church groups, and to prisoners. A man taken from a place of death and brought to a place of renewed life. Stories like this amaze me for many reasons. That a person so broken can manage to embrace redemption. And even more so, I am stunned at the family's capacity to forgive and work for the freedom of the man. I wonder to myself, could I do that? Not just forgive, but to work to free a man who killed a member of my family. Hmm. There's a lesson there that we should never stop seeing the image of God in others. When you do, when you, when you fail to see the image of God in them, you will treat them as something less than human. And in turn, you will become something less than human yourself. So today, we're going to read a tremendous text, a, script, a scripture from the Bible, a story of forgiveness, of rejection, of restoration, and mercy. It's a story of a man, demon-possessed, pushed out of his family, out of his home, out of his community, and he becomes one who is living death. But Jesus comes, and he redeems, and he restores him. This story has for us this. Only when you stand under the authority and mercy of Jesus can you find forgiveness, restoration, and peace. But you can find that true restoration and peace. It's about a man who's brought from violent ruin and becomes a most unlikely disciple. The text is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 20 today. So they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. The people went out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the legion sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. They were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people 
and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and the people were amazed. Hmm, what a story. Demon possession, property destruction, a town seeing Jesus' miracles, and they just want to get rid of him. What on earth is going on here? Well, all starts with travel going across the lake. Jesus and his disciples have left familiar, welcome places to a land that is hostile and alien to them. They are going to the area of the Decapolis, a place that is on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. Yes, it is on the opposite side of the lake, but the Decapolis is also just about as opposite of Galilee as you could get. Galilee is home to Jewish communities. The people there are extremely devoted to God, and Galilee is a backwater area far from the centers of commerce. It's a country area. The Decapolis is a name given to an area occupied by 10 cities. This is a Greek area, and so it is predominantly Gentiles who live there. It's highly populated, highly civilized. It's very wealthy. It's a center of commerce and a center of power. The Decapolis is the product of what happens when you bring together all the best of our world's cultures together. Even the Decapolis, however, the Decapolis was pagan, and they did not worship God. The Jewish people saw this area as a place rife with demonic activity and utterly unholy. As the disciples are sailing across the lake, they encounter a storm. You can read that just before this in Mark chapter 4. This storm would not have surprised them. In their minds, this is what happens when you go to places where people do not love God. Undoubtedly, they would have seen that storm on the Sea of Galilee as a spiritual attack. It's a spiritual storm. And that's what happens. I do believe there was a spiritual element to the storm. Jesus is going to set a man free who's oppressed by demons. They're going to fight back, even if they can't win. By now, you can begin to hear a little of why this man is an unlikely disciple. He's not an Israelite. He's a Gentile. And all the other followers of Jesus at this moment are Israelites. He's not going to fit in. And he lives in a very unholy place across the lake. You know what's also interesting about this story is that Jesus is unlooked for. Jesus seeks out those who don't call his name. This man could have had no idea who Jesus was, yet Jesus had redemption for him. It was Jesus' idea to get into the boat, to sail across the Sea of Galilee, to go to this pagan territory of the Decapolis. Jesus is focused on redeeming this man, though he hasn't asked for it. I find comfort in this. Jesus comes looking for us before we even ask for him. First, it shows It shows his unreserved love for us, regardless of whether we feel lovable or even if we even want his love. And secondly, Jesus is chasing after us before we even realize we need help. I find comfort in that. I'm glad I don't have to realize I need help for Jesus to come after me first. Many listening to this have loved ones who are not Christians. Perhaps they have someone in their life who has outright rejected Jesus. Take comfort in this. Jesus is still seeking them out. He's not merely waiting for them to wake up. He is pursuing them, and no amount of sin or hiding can keep Jesus away. Back to the man, the demon-possessed man. 
He is existing in a terrible state. He is living death. That's probably the best description of what this man's life is like now. We never get this man's name. And there are some who might even say the man thought his name was Legion. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't even remember his own name anymore. He's possessed and controlled by many, many demons. We find out it's many demons when he cries out, My name is Legion, for we are many. How many is a legion? Well, a Roman legion was a division in the Roman army of 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen. I am not sure if that's how many demons there were in this man, but what we're meant to know is that there are lots of them in him. He is overrun by demons. You might still say that calling this man living death is an extreme description, but he's not living as a human anymore. He's not welcome in his own family. He's not welcome in his home. He's not welcome in the town. He's not even welcome in the open country. He has to live in a graveyard. He lives among the dead. His only home is with the dead. The community has stopped treating him like a person. They've tried restraining him, but he breaks those iron chains with ease. Verse 4 Um, tells us that no one is strong enough to subdue him. And that word subdue there, we see that in English, but it doesn't fully tell us what they're trying to do. That word in the Greek is used to describe taming a wild animal. You know, we don't tame people. The town has ceased seeing him as human. They see him as something less, an animal. I'm not sure there's anything more dehumanizing than the sheer loneliness, loneliness this man was enduring. He is tortured by these demons. David Garland describes them as using this man as their personal gymnasium. They're destroying his identity. They have stripped away his community from him. Mentally, he is their prisoner. Physically, he's a walking wound. The text tells us he's covered in lacerations from rocks that he's cut himself with. And I'm sure he may be able to physically break those chains because of the demons inside, but those chains probably broke his body and his skin every time he he broke loose from them. This man is living death. Humanity is stripped away. There's no hope. He's unable to cry out with his own voice. Only a monster speaks for him. He is helpless. He is a slave to unending terror. And then Jesus gets off the boat and like a laser goes straight to this miserable man. Jesus does battle with these demons. He wants to bring this man from living death to life again. And what we get is a display of the, of the awesome authority of Jesus. The text actually tells us of authority, and it shows us a pale imitation of authority. The demons try to show authority, but it's pale. It's not real authority. They try to show it in a whole bunch of ways. They try to offer a false worship to Jesus, making the man kneel before him. Ah, he'll he'll let us go if we can show that we might kind of worship him. They try to show strength by shouting. How often we try to show our own strength through bravado and volume. The demons try to exert authority by declaring who Jesus is. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. In essence, when the demons cry out his name, they're declaring they have Jesus' number. They know what he's up to. He's no surprise to them. They're trying to show they're powerful, but they're not. The demons try to tell Jesus 
what to do by invoking the name of God. In God's name, don't torture me. Think about that. They're trying to circumvent the power of Jesus by calling on the Father's authority. In God's name, don't do this. And the demons try to diminish the authority of Jesus by claiming that he's going to torture them. This always makes my stomach turn. The gall the demons had to say that Jesus would torture them. But sin always twists the truth. There are many people who would claim injustice when their own faults are brought to light. It's not your business. You're a hypocrite. Don't judge me. Oh, you're just being bad to me. (sighs) It is our own sin that brings about suffering and torture. The demons... (laughs) They're worried about being tortured, but they don't even care that they have ruined this man's life, that they're going to kill all these pigs. They just don't mind. They just don't want to be tortured themselves. So Jesus asks, what is your name? And I'm not sure we can assume Jesus was asking the demon its name or if Jesus is asking the man its name, but the demon answers, we are legion or my name is legion for we are many. The demons even try to bargain with Jesus, as though they have the authority to bargain with him. Send us to the pigs. The demons tried to exert authority, a false authority, and they fail. You know, and in this story, the town has tried to exert authority, and they've failed. They've tried to uh, tame the man. They've tried to bind him. They've tried everything they could, and nobody can subdue him. Even their strongest iron chains don't work. So all of their authority is for naught. And then there's Jesus. The demons fail. The town fails. And then Jesus, with a word, sets the man free. He restores and he heals him. As commentator David Garland says, The power of Jesus' person alone drives the demons out. This text is telling us that Jesus' authority is always sufficient. His authority is superior to ours, and I am thankful for that. Will you trust today in the sufficient authority of Jesus? More often, we try to stand on our own authority as long as we possibly can. I can do this. I can manage. I can take care of things. And then we ask Jesus to jump in when our authority runs out, but we are being asked by the Bible to trust the sufficiency of Jesus's authority. There's a picture of giving up on our authority here. I was reading a couple of illustrations and there's one about grace, but I actually think it shows very well how much we need someone else's power and authority, Jesus's power and authority. And the story is about... um, Baby Jessica, some of you might remember hearing about this. I remember hearing about this as a little boy back in 1987. That 18-month-old little baby fell into a 22-foot well in Texas, and the rescuers labored nonstop to save her. After 55 grueling hours, her life hanging in the balance, they finally reached her and extracted her from the well. And the nation breathed a sigh of relief, cheering on the heroes. And Randy Alcorn points out how 
this is grace and this is the authority of the workers and not baby Jessica's because he says the authority the story was not isn't it great that baby Jessica clawed her 18 month old body up the side of a 22 foot well inch by inch digging her little toes and working her way up she's a hero that's not what the story was there was nothing that little girl could do to get out of the well she needed those workers to save her And there is really no authority we have that can redeem ourselves, that can fix ourselves truly and wholly. We need the rescuer, the authority of Jesus to do this work in us. (sighs) Then there's a reaction of the crowd to this healed man. There's a man who is taken from the edge of life. He's living dead. He's more like an animal than human, and he's healed. It's a miracle. How wonderful. And the community comes out to see. They see this man healed, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they see the pigs dead. They see the demons are gone. They see that everything they tried to do, the bindings, everything they tried to do to help didn't work. But they see that Jesus, with a word, healed this man. And their response to the miracle? No thanks. We would rather you leave, Jesus. The community in that response shows that they too have become less than human. They are more comfortable with demons than they are with Jesus. You know, we're not all that different. Now, none of us would say we're comfortable with living with demons, but more often than not, we are more comfortable to remain in our sins than to face them, to confess them, and to have them rooted out of our lives. When we do this, we become ugly like this town. And they were ugly. They were less than human. They beat this man. They chained this man. They forced him out of the town into a graveyard. They were not even happy when he was healed. That's ugly. They were content to use force to tame this man, but were uncomfortable with Jesus speaking a word to set him free. They are indifferent to this man's healing, and it seems they prefer the pigs to this man restored. How'd they get this way? I don't know. But it's not a stretch to say to say that they started wanting to help this man out, but then drove him away when he endangered their families and desired and they desired to protect their property. At some point, good motives moved into something inhuman. They ceased trying to bring heaven to this man, and they defended their own little kingdoms instead. But it is wonderful that Jesus is in the restoration business. And this man becomes a disciple, an unlikely disciple. And he has an unlikely mission as well. This bizarre story takes yet another strange turn at its very ending. Because as Jesus gets ready to leave, the man who's healed asks Jesus if he can follow him. And Jesus says, no. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus came specifically to liberate this man. This man didn't ask for him. And if you think about it, in this story, this man doesn't even repent. Jesus gets off the boat. He goes up to the demon-possessed man who's running towards him. He heals him, sets him free, casts out these demons, puts him in his right mind, and then he leaves. He's all here for just this man. And this man says, I want to follow you. Can I go with you? He doesn't allow the man to follow him, to travel with him. Let's add some more to the confusion. 
Jesus says yes to Legion's request to enter the pigs. Jesus says yes to the community when they say, you need to leave, Jesus. He says yes to those who are rejecting him or who are opposed to him. And he says no to this newly restored man. What on earth is going on here? Oftentimes, God's plans are for questions we're not asking yet. The man's asking, can I come with you? And God's plan is different. Jesus has another plan for this man. This man is to be his disciple. In fact, he's to become one of the very first missionaries, if not the first. All through the Gospel of Mark, something interesting is happening here. When you read the Gospel of Mark, especially in the beginning, Jesus silences demons. When they come up and they start to say his name, Jesus quiets them down. When he heals people, he tells them to be quiet and not tell others that they've been healed. But not so with this man. It changes here at this moment. This, at this time, Jesus tells the man, go and tell others what God has done for you. He wants him to go and tell his people about God's mercy and that he was healed. He's an unlikely disciple because he's not Jewish and he's not very holy. He's a demon-possessed man, but now he's restored. He's also a monster. I want you to think about that for a moment. This man who was healed was a monster. He was more animal than human. He was out of his mind. He was the crazy guy in the graveyard and he brought misery to anybody who stumbled upon him. People were terrified of him. And now Jesus says, I'm going to trust you with being my missionary. This man is now the best possible ambassador of Jesus to the Decapolis. In their excellent book, Mending the Divides, John Huckins and Jer Swigert describe a Japanese pottery tradition that articulates the power that is we see in our text today. They write, when we speak of peace, we can call to mind the ancient Japanese pottery tradition, and I'm not going to say this right, I'm sorry, uh, kintsugi. With this technique, a clay vessel, when it's broken, is then put back together, but not in its original form. Instead, the restoration process involves the use of pure gold to mend the divides that heal the fi- and heal the fissures. The broken vessel is put back together in such a way that it is stronger and more beautiful than before it was broken. In Kensugi, the scars tell the beautiful stories of healing and restoration rather than the painful stories of destruction. Everything that makes this man an unlikely disciple has made him perfect for the job. His very scars are now his story of victory. It's the same way for you and for me. Each of us are called to share God's mercy to those around us. Whatever reason just popped into your mind about why you can't go and tell others is all the more reason to why you can. Jesus specifically charged this man with telling his story and sharing the mercy of God, and we need to do this too. This is a story of incredible mercy. We might where we might want to judge. What did this man do to be possessed by legion? God shows, instead shows mercy. We might want to judge the town. Oh, they're awful people for not caring about the man and rejecting Jesus. But they're shown mercy with the gift of a missionary. And so we are called to not judge, 
but to show mercy, to proclaim grace, to show that there is a way of restoration for everyone who would receive. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 tells us about God and his mercy. It says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And Matthew 5, 7 reminds us that we are to be merciful to others. It's one of the Beatitudes where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. John Stott says this, If I withhold mercy... I have lost touch with the gospel. I have lost touch with God's undeserved kindness and pardon. And Philip Yancey says this, By forgiving another, I am trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. That's the power of mercy. Will you trust the mercy of Jesus? Will you trust his authority over your life? Perhaps you've been like the townspeople. You started well, but you've seen your neighbor as an enemy more than a friend. A bitterness and a fear has grown in you. Choose to trust the authority of Jesus instead. Perhaps you feel like the man in the story, alone, unworthy, unloved, perhaps beyond redemption. Trust the mercy of Jesus. It is sufficient for you. I like this quote from Augustine of Hippo. Trust the past to God's mercy. Trust the present to God's love. And trust the future to God's providence. Good words to live by. The possessed man, the demon-possessed man set free, may have been an unlikely disciple, but the reality is we are all unlikely disciples. The difference maker is King Jesus in our lives. Will you let him? Almighty God, thank you that you have not dealt with us according to our sins. Thank you instead for your mercy. And help us to stand truly in submission to your authority, trusting its sufficiency. It is only by your power and mercy that we can find hope and life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.